the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Monday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. We're glad to have you with us. Clark Hilton is engineering today's program. James Blend is producing. Well, there's a breaking news story that uh, is a result of a Washington Post article in which um, it suggests that the president revealed classified information to Russian foreign minister and ambassador when they met last week. Uh, to refer to it as classified is a bit of a, a bit misleading because it's only classified if the president says it's classified. And what we're talking about is the leaking of information, uh, presumably um, related to the location of information that might uh, unmask a, a source that had not given permission uh, to the U.S. to reveal its involvement. Uh, we are waiting now for a press conference. Uh, H.R. McMaster, who's with the National Security Agency, is just approaching the podium now. Uh, we're going to try to share that with you a bit later to respond to these allegations uh, outlined in the Washington Post. There were three um, uh, principals at that meeting, Rex Tillerson, uh, Dana Powell, and H.R. McMaster uh, with the NSA. Uh, it's not clear who the... Uh, the uh, Leakers were, if you will. Um, the Washington Post does say that you have information from those who are currently with the uh, administration and those who are former um, White House or former intelligence operatives. So it's not clear who the information came from, whether or not it's accurate. We're waiting for that to continue to develop. I'm not going to speculate much on that now because I don't want to uh, uh, to do just that speculate. But we will try to bring the content of this a press conference that's going on right now with um, H.R. McMaster. It was very short. In fact, he just took to the podium. He's just walked away from the podium, and we'll try to get that audio uh, here in just a few moments. In other news, North Korea said on Monday that the medium-range strategic missile it tested over the weekend was capable of carrying a large-size heavy nuclear warhead. Uh, Kim Jong-un said uh, uh, was said to have witnessed the test himself on, early on Sunday, hugged officials in the field of uh, the rocket, saying that they uh, worked hard to achieve this great thing. Now, the trajectory may have been somewhat misleading because the rocket apparently went straight up and down. But if it were to uh, be spread out in a more linear uh, fashion, it could, in fact, reach uh, areas of great concern to the United States. The claim, if uh, confirmed, would mark another big step forward in the country's escalating effort to field a nuclear-tipped missile capable of reaching the U.S. mainland. Outside experts have said that they do not believe the rogue nation can do that yet, but each new test may push them closer to that goal. Earlier on Sunday, officials uh, said that the U.S. military believed Pyongyang launched a KN-17 medium-range missile. It's a ballistic missile, the first successful test in four attempts by Pyongyang regime. The missile uh, flew for four minutes, longer than any previous ballistic missile test in the history of the uh, communist regime. The K-917, or rather KN-17, is a single-stage liquid-fueled missile, not the three-stage solid-fuel missile that North Korea successfully tested back in February that caused more concern among Pentagon officials. North Korea made three attempts last month to launch the KN-17, but failed each time. Officials have said that they believe North Korea aims to use the missile to target 
ships. The missile flew for um, half an hour, reached the, an unusually high altitude before landing in the Sea of Japan, the South Korean, Japanese, and U.S. militaries have said. The latest test came a few days after the CIA opened a new mission center to study the nuclear and missile threat from North Korea. Meanwhile, um, a U.S. agency, or rather a U.N., a United Nations agency, is helping North Korea to patent application uh, for banned nerve gas chemical. And one wonders why on earth they would move forward with that. For more than a year, a United Nations agency in Geneva has been helping North Korea prepare an international patent application for production of sodium cyanide. It's a chemical that's used to make nerve gas, uh, the gas called tabin. Uh, which has been on a list of materials banned from shipment to that country by the U.N. Security Council since 2006. Well, the World Intellectual Property Organization uh, has made no mention of the application to the Security Council Committee monitoring North Korean sanctions, nor the U.N. panel of uh, experts that report sanctions violations to committees, even while concerns about North Korean weapons of mass destruction and the willingness to use them has been on a steep upward spiral. Uh, it's been learned that both U.N. bodies of the patent application for the first uh, first time late last week uh, are examining the application file on a publicly available uh, Internet website. And information on the website indicates that North Korea started the international patent process in November of 2015, about two months before its fourth illegal nuclear test. The most recent document on the website is a, a status report dated uh, May 14th of 2017, and uh, replacing a previous status uh, report on May the 8th, declaring that North Korean applications, uh, applicants' fitness to apply for and to be granted a patent. So apparently the right hand doesn't know what the left hand is doing at the United Nations. Meanwhile, several nations have requested urgent consultation on North Korea, and a closed-door meeting is tentatively planned for Tuesday afternoon, according to CBS News. The Japanese mission to the U.N. told CBS News that the request for an urgent meeting was a, uh, a trilateral request by Japan, the U.S., and South Korea. The U.S. and China have been negotiating a new round of biting sanctions if further provo- uh, provocations were to occur, which, of course, one occurred on Sunday. The question will be if the most recent missile test spurs U.N. Security Council action. They tend to be very slow in moving. Meanwhile, U.S. Ambassador to the United States Nikki Haley tweeted out the following earlier in the day. North Korea test-fired a ballistic missile early Sunday morning from a facility near the country's west coast. U.S. officials have said, well, the missiles flew for half an hour, reached an unusually high altitude. The launch jeopardized uh, new South Korean President Moon Jae-in's willingness to dialogue with the North and came as uh, United States, Japan, and European navies gathered for joint war games in the Pacific. This also exposes uh, perhaps the uh, inability of China to rein in its uh, ally and to control in any way what it does and does not do. It cautioned North Korea not to engage in another missile test, which, of course, it has now done. What happens next remains to be seen. Well, an armed Russian fighter jet flew up alarmingly close to a U.S. Navy reconnaissance aircraft flying uh, in the, the Black Sea on Tuesday, just one day before Russian Foreign Minister uh, Sergei Lavrov visited Washington. Whether or not that was the subject of discussion is unknown. The Russian jet came as close as 20 feet to the American aircraft, remained that close for five minutes, according to defense officials. The Russian jet was carrying six air-to-air missiles under its wing, so it was loaded, making this um, episode highly provocative, one official said. It's very rare for a Russian jet to intercept a U.S. aircraft while visibly armed. This was a one-off, one official said. Well, that's certainly hopeful. Earlier, officials 
officials described the encounter as safe. And while this one was considered by the uh, flight crew to be safe and professional, this sort of close encounter certainly has the possibility to become dangerous in a hurry, the defense official said. An Su-27 Russian jet made the uh, close approach to the P-8A Poseidon while the Navy uh, plane was in international airspace. The uh, Navy vessel was scrambling reportedly after the Poseidon appeared to be approaching Russians, uh, Russia's border. The Poseidon soon changed its course. In a statement issued on Friday, the Russian officials called the jet's intercept a greeting maneuver. That's in quotes. After approaching a plane of a safe distance, the Russian pilot uh, visually identified the flying object as a U.S. surveillance plane, uh, P-8A Poseidon, the Russian military said in a statement, which, of course, could have been uh, done at a greater distance. Unlike Russian intercepts in the past, this Russian jet approached the U.S. Navy recon plane slowly, according to the defense official. The entire encounter lasted about an hour. It goes on almost every day of the week, the official said, a separate official uh, speaking about 60 such incidents that have occurred since 2007. And finally, uh, the United States today faces a rising number of threats to national security from around the world, whether it's going to be from North Korea, ISIS, Russia. The list continues to grow. We'll talk more about the fact that the U.S. Navy or rather the U.S. Army needs more troops to confront global threats and what that might mean moving forward. 16 minutes after four o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We are back 21 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Zero Res. Later this hour, we're going to talk with Robert Hutchinson. He's the author of The Dawn of Christianity, How God Used Simple Fishermen, Soldiers, and Prostitutes to Transform the World. He'll be joining us later this hour. Well, as I mentioned, the unfolding story having to do with whether or not the president revealed highly classified information to Russian foreign minister and ambassador with whom he met last week is unfolding. And there were three principals in that meeting, Rex Tillerson, uh, Dina Powell and H.R. McMaster. Uh, Mr. McMaster took to the microphone uh, just a few moments ago to respond to these allegations. Uh, and the question is whether or not what the Washington Post uh, uh, has published is founded in fact, or it's if they are driving some sort of agenda. We can't answer that question at this point, and I'm not going to uh, speculate, but um, this is what Mr. McMaster had to say in defense of that meeting. Uh, where he and two other intelligence community operatives would have advised and overseen the president as he spoke to the Russian foreign minister and the Russian ambassador. I just have a brief statement for the record. There's nothing that the president takes more seriously than the, the security of the American people. The story that came out tonight, as reported, is false. The president and the foreign minister reviewed a range of common threats to our two countries, including threats to civil aviation. At no time... At no time were intelligence sources or methods discussed. And the president did not disclose any military operations that were not already publicly known. Two other senior officials who were present, including the Secretary of State, remember the meeting the same way and have said so. Their on-the-record accounts should outweigh those of anonymous sources. And I, I was in the room. It didn't happen. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. That was the entirety of the statement made by the NSA director, H.R. McMaster. Now, the Washington Post cited current and former U.S. officials. And generally, when you're referring to former officials, it's from a previous administration. And the speculation is, because this whole thing is fraught with speculation, is that it would have been operatives from the previous administration. We're going to leave it at that. Hopefully, there's more information to uh, develop that will develop tomorrow. But again, there were three principals in the room 
who deny that this uh, account in the Washington Post took place, that any information was, in fact, compromised. But you have the Washington Post, who has uh, anonymous sources, current and former U.S. officials, as they've been described. And they went on to say that they could disclose more specific details, but chose not to. Um, Again, uh, the administration versus um, the Washington Post. Now, tomorrow, uh, the administration has has now another distraction to try to prevent uh, Republicans from um, opposing them from behind, Democrats from in front, and uh, just another element to the challenge of the administration to move forward and to uh, to govern. We'll continue to follow the story. Hopefully, there'll be more details and. Uh, information that can be confirmed, and we'll certainly bring it to your attention if that is the case. I had mentioned before the break that the United States today faces a rising number of threats, and according to uh, a couple of um, of operatives uh, referring to the 217 Index of Military Strength, uh, they note that the U.S. military is America's primary land warfare component. Their chief value to the nation is the ability to defeat and destroy enemy land forces in battle. Many people hope that the recent wars in Iraq and Afghanistan will be the last major engagements requiring a ground force exceeding 100,000 and that the army will not need to be as large in the future. That has been the speculation. That was the plan under the previous administration, the hope of, I'm, I'm guessing, virtually every uh, U.S. citizen. However, as former Secretary of Defense Robert Gates has no In the 40 years since Vietnam, we have a perfect record of predicting where we will use military force next. We never once have gotten it right. If you think about it from Iraq twice to Afghanistan and so on, it's not one of those cases. uh, In not one of those cases, did we have any hint six months ahead of that uh, start of hostilities that we were going to have military forces in those places? Coming at the question from a different angle, Marxist revolutionary Leon Trotsky famously stated that you may not be interested in war, but war is interested in you, suggesting that we often don't have the luxury of choice when faced with a war. Now, the prospect of engaging in an all-out war is one I think most of us would uh, not like to uh, to compl- uh, contemplate, but a broad array of military experts are agreeing that the U.S. Army is too small, and retired Army General Barry McCaffrey has argued that it is grossly undermanned. He also said that in spite of a growing recognition that Russia is a strategic threat, the U.S. still has inadequate ground combat power in Europe. And since the end of the Cold War, the Army has been destabilizing permanent bases, reducing personnel levels across Europe. This downsizing trend will make rebuilding a presence there much more difficult. Some argue that downsizing can be offset by advances in military technology. This trade-off between capacity and capability has been made in other military services. But Dan Gore, who's of the Lexington Institute, argues that such a trade-off in Europe would be disastrous for both the Army and national security. According to Mr. Giar, the Army shouldn't decrease troop levels in order to pay for future high-tech weapons system, as both sufficient capacity and modernization are crucial to the sustaining combat readiness into the future, highlighting the uncertainty uh, as... Threats loom. We've talked about North Korea, uh, Russia, and then the Syrian regime is using apparently a set aside um, a, a site rather outside Damascus to cremate the bodies of thousands of prisoners. It's abducted, jailed, murdered during the country's long running civil war there, according to the U.S. State Department. Well, acting assistant secretary for Near East Affairs, Stuart Jones, showed surveillance photos that combined with intelligence assessments and other reports. Officials believe show Bashar Assad's government is complicit in covering up evidence of mass killings 
on the um, uh, at the uh, prison there, Sednaya uh, Prison, located near Damascus. The prison previously had been called a human slaughterhouse by Amnesty International. And although the regime's many atrocities are well documented, it's now believed that the building of a crema- uh, crematorium is an effort to cover up the extent of the mass murders taking place uh, at that prison. Uh, Mr. Jones, again, of... Uh, uh, the acting director, uh, uh, acting assistant, rather, secretary of Near Eastern Affairs, uh, also charged that the atrocities were carried out with unconditional support from Russia and Iran. The department released commercial satellite photographs that showed what it said is a building in the prison complex that's been modified to support the crematorium. The photographs taken over the course of several years, beginning in 2013, don't definitely prove the building is a crematorium, but they show construction consistent with such use. The U.S. conclusion is based in part on photos that show snow melting near the building believed to be the crematorium, but Uh, When present, the State Department wouldn't say for certain that the melting was caused by a crematorium. Well, the conditions at the prison known to hold uh, many of Assad's political opponents, as well as violent Syrian rebels, are thought to be horrific, with 70 prisoners uh, kept in a cell designed for five people and up to 50 executions per day. Amnesty International has previously called uh, Sednaya a human slaughterhouse, estimating 13,000 people were killed there from 2011 to 2015, and it's believed Assad's regime kidnapped more than 100,000 people during that time as well. In presenting the photographs, uh, Jones said Syrian President Assad's government has uh, sunk to a new level of depravity and the support of Russia and Iran and called on both countries to use their influence with Syrian uh, leadership to establish a credible ceasefire and begin political talks. Well, Mexico is uh, the second most deadly conflict zone in the on the globe, according to a new study. The country has surpassed both Iraq and Afghanistan to become the world's most violent country in after Syria. The study by the International Institute for Strategic Studies. Well, it really is uh, focused on two areas in the country. Nearly 23,000 people were killed in Mexico in 2016 as the turf wars among drug cartels continued. Around 17,000 were killed in Afghanistan, 16,000 in Iraq during that same period. Researchers pointed out that Mexico's level of violence is especially shocking because the conflict in that country is marked by the absence of artillery, tanks or combat aviation. ISIS director, it's IISS, not ISIS. Um, the uh, director of the International Institute for Strategic Studies, or IISS, the director, uh, John Chipman, said that while discussing the survey in London on Tuesday, um, he almost uh, said that almost all the Mexican deaths were the result of small arms. The highest number of deaths were reported in the states of Sinaloa and um, Guerrero, uh, known for fighting among competing uh, Uh, increasingly fragmented cartels, he said. Violence frequently occurs in gangs attempting to clear locations uh, of rivals so that they can gain control, select drug trafficking routes, and uh, and so on. And this at a time when the uh, president has indicated that he is making eradicating foreign gangs in the United States a uh, priority. We'll see what happens there. Up next, we're going to talk with Robert Hutchinson. He's the author of The Dawn of Christianity, How God Used Simple Fishermen, Soldiers, and Prostitutes to Transform the World. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 
37 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. My next guest points out that historians are still trying to piece together how a mysterious small-town rabbi launched an underground movement 2,000 years ago that became the world's largest religion, one that today includes nearly a third of the global population. Well, in his new book, The Dawn of Christianity, How God Used Simple Fishermen, Soldiers, and Prostitutes to Transform the World, Robert Hutchinson, he draws upon the latest archaeological discoveries and developments in biblical scholars to fill in the details of the story uh, that uh, were left out of the New Testament. He shows that Christianity was no accident. Jesus of Nazareth had a deliberate plan he knew would result in his death, but which would not end there. In a shockingly brief time, just 30 months, Jesus and his friends ignited a spiritual revolution that sent shockwaves far beyond the rural villages of northern Israel and into every nation and every institution on earth. He writes, in the dawn of Christianity, he traces the first 20 years, offering a meticulously researched narrative account of those events. Well, Robert Hutchinson is an award-winning writer and author. He studied philosophy as an undergraduate, moved to Israel to learn Hebrew, and earned a graduate degree in New Testament studies. His previous book, In Search of... uh, in is rather searching for Jesus of Nazareth, an overview of recent archaeological finds and new developments in biblical scholarship that are calling into question much of what skeptical scholars have assumed and asserted about Jesus over the past uh, two centuries. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, thanks for having me on, Georgine. In your introduction, you point out that after 2,000 years, historians are still trying to piece together exactly how it all happened. Now, uh, Christians would point to the scriptures and say, you can read what happened. This is how it happened. You want to tell the story behind the story, the details that are left out in the gospel accounts and the epistles that follow. Yeah, I mean, I, what people don't realize is that, uh, you know, there's been a tremendous amount of archaeological discoveries and, st- and discoveries in biblical studies that supplement that don't contradict, but actually supplement the biblical accounts, the gospel accounts. And we actually know a lot more than we did even 10 or 20 years ago about where things were located and, and so on. And I just kind of wanted to, to retell the story and fill in all those details that a modern reader, uh, not even necessarily a Christian reader, but a modern reader, would want to know if they were learning the story for the first time, kind of telling it from a journalistic perspective. And what shocks many people is that we know a lot of this stuff now, and uh and I just wanted to retell the gospel story and, and fill in those details. Now, the book begins with an examination of the final week of, of Jesus' life, um, uh, following uh, his sudden arrest, condemnation, execution. You examine what uh, historians know and don't know about the uh, appearances of Jesus to his followers uh, and so on. Let's start at the beginning in which you, uh, you examine uh, those, those early days. Well, I mean, if you don't accept the gospel accounts, uh, 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 at least uh, in some degree, then you can't really piece together what happened. But what I'm finding is more and more historians are accepting it. The the hyper-skepticism that used to dominate uh, biblical studies in secular universities has all, has all but vanished in the last 10 or 20 years, largely because we've we've discovered so many things that, that support what the Gospels say from a purely historical point of view. We've discovered the, you know, the burial, the burial box of Caiaphas, the high priest Caiaphas. We've found uh, inscriptions with the names of minor officials that are mentioned in the in the Acts of the Apostles. So all of these details have have made many secular historians 
step back from the skepticism that dominated academic studies of the New Testament, you know, 10 or 20 years ago, and now they're much more willing to look at the Gospels afresh with new eyes and say, well, you know, this, this is probably pretty close to what actually happened. And that's kind of a revolutionary change that's just happened in the last uh, 10 or 20 years or so, and most people don't realize that. You describe yourself as a popular historian trying to bring insights of biblical scholars and archaeologists to regular people rather than a a biblical scholar. So you're trying to uh, be a conduit to provide those of us who are at the other end of it, not the biblical scholar or the archaeologist, to to gain some understanding of what's been unearthed over the years. Yeah, that's right. I mean, the problem with biblical scholars is they only write for each other. And they write in these very technical, very big books, and they're very hard to read. And, And so a lot of their... Genuine discoveries and amazing insights that have happened in the last few years are not reaching uh, down to the people in the pews. So people in the pews tend to dismiss it all as just, uh, you know, as just secular uh, debunking of Christianity, and that's really not the case. I mean, there are a lot of top scholars in major secular universities all over the world that are making discoveries that reinforce the gospel accounts and really add to our understanding. Um, I mean, for example, we've just discovered, uh, like, two years ago, the remains of Herod the Great's palace, and most scholars and archaeologists are now convinced that it was there that Jesus was interrogated by Pilate, because in the Gospel it describes Pilate's the Praetorium, or the military headquarters, as a palace. And in the past, they used to think it was, it was all the way across Jerusalem at a tower, a guard tower that guarded the Temple Mount. And so that's totally changed the path that archaeologists think Jesus walked on the way to the cross. And that may be a minor detail, because it might not seem that important if Jesus went one way or another, but people are really trying to figure out what actually happened. It matters a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so th- these kinds of details, um, I don't know, they, they've always fascinated me. I've always been interested in the subject and the, and the actual uh, details of what happened. And for people who are interested in that, there's been a lot of new stuff that's been discovered. Yeah, yeah. Let's talk about sources. Many of our readers would be familiar with many of them, the New Testament, the works of Josephus, uh, the Talmud, which is the first five books of the Old Testament. But there are some sources that uh, they may not be as familiar with and that were rejected as part of the Bible, but can offer some insight into the events that you're focusing on uh, that took place during that time. Well, what, one of the, my the, the greatest sources was just covered, uh, discovered uh, four or five years ago. It's called the Gabriel Revelation. It's a stone tablet uh, dating to the first century on which are written ancient Hebrew letters that describe a Messiah uh, who would suffer and die and perhaps rise again. Uh, and what this this was, uh, this is an authentic stone tablet that's been discovered and it's been it's been often on. Often authenticated, authenticated, <laughs> authenticated by archaeologists and everything. And what this proves was that the Jews in the time of Jesus were, some Jews were expecting a suffering Messiah. Okay, and the reason that's important is for the last 200 years, experts have been claiming that the Jews were not expecting a suffering Messiah, so all that talk in the New Testament about a suffering Messiah was made up by the early Christian Church to explain away the embarrassing fact that the Messiah was crucified. Okay, so this was considered a, a justification or, or uh, 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 of the fact that Jesus was crucified, and now we know that that's not true. So one of the foundation pillars 
for skepticism towards the New Testament that literally it goes back 100 to 200 years has been wiped clean. And so we now know that there actually there were Jews that were ex- expecting a suffering Messiah. And so that, that, that belief was in the air and wasn't just made up by the early followers of Jesus as, a, as an excuse to explain away the crucifixion. So that, that's a source that was only discovered, you know, in 2009. Uh, and that's actually on a stone tablet uh, that was found on the other side of the Jordan River. Um, so yes, we are discovering many, many sources that the previous generations of scholars haven't looked at that are shedding light on the New Testament. We're talking with um, uh, Robert Hutchinson. He is the author of a fascinating book, The Dawn of Christianity, um, How God Used Simple Fishermen, Soldiers, and Prostitutes to Transform the World. We'll continue our conversation in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 51 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Talking with Robert Hutchinson. He's the author of The Dawn of Christianity, How God Used Simple Fishermen, Soldiers, and Prostitutes to Transform the World. In the book, you place um, emphasis on the fact that Jesus of Nazareth had a very specific plan uh, and that he was not just a victim of circumstance uh, that led him ultimately to Jerusalem, where he had declared and knew full well that his life would end. Uh, Talk a little bit about why that was important to emphasize uh, and uh, what um, what we need to know about that aspect of his earthly ministry? Well, because I, uh, there's been a lot of people who've over the years, over the actually centuries, have said that Jesus never intended to found a movement, uh, to found what we would call the church, um, and and that uh, and as a result, they discount a lot of what the New Testament says. And, and I think the evidence is pretty clear from the New Testament that is precisely what he did intend to do and that he was bringing his message into the heart of his society, which was Jerusalem, and he knew that it would mean his death, and yet he did it anyway. And even from a secular perspective, even from people who who don't uh, who aren't Christians, if they if they read the story with a uh, with an open mind, I think they'll they'll be amazed at you know just the the drama of it itself, the uh, Jesus's willingness to confront the most powerful people in his society, and accept um, that he could very well be tortured and killed for what he was doing, and that's I think what actually happened. And and uh, I find uh, um, that increasingly historians are saying that the story as presented in the Gospels makes the most sense compared to all the other, uh, you know, many reconstructions where people have tried to figure out what possible possibly could have motivated Jesus. Um, and uh, I think the Gospel story is the most plausible. In addition to focusing on the what the Gospels tell us about the life and ministry and intent of Jesus, you also uh, spend a considerable amount of time talking about the rapid growth of, of Christianity after his resurrection and the specific leaders who were emboldened by the Holy Spirit and by the teaching of Jesus to uh, teach the, the, uh, the good news all across the known world. Talk a little bit about the growth of Christianity and how fascinating it is to examine how that happened um, from a, a different vantage point. Well, yeah, I mean, I think that's the proof that that's exactly what Jesus intended, was that almost immediately um, Jesus' followers began actively recruiting uh, members of their movement. Uh, I mean, uh, you know, and very, very quickly, the people were flocking to join this movement after Pentecost, which is 50 days after the crucifixion. So within, uh, you know, uh, less than two months, there was this enormous push 
um, into into the community, and people were were joining uh, just by by hundreds. In fact, at one point, they said three thousand people were added to their number that day in Acts. So the movement caught on like wildfire in the earliest days of of uh, Christianity or the Jesus movement, as we say, and then it was quickly persecuted. Uh, the evidence for that is quite strong with the the, the stoning of Stephen, the first Christian martyr, and the people quickly, because of this persecution, spread out uh, and fled Jerusalem and moved into Syria and as far north as Antioch and Damascus, so that by the time Paul gets there to Damascus, there is already a thriving uh, Christian community in that city. So that proves that, to me it proves, that the early fol- the followers of Jesus uh, took his commission very seriously and quickly uh, uh, fanned out across the Mediterranean to actively found a movement which became the Christian Church. Does archaeology tell us much about that period? Yeah, they're, they're, finding, they're finding more and more stuff every day. That's what's so amazing. As I said, you know, for a long time, people, and to this day, people are trying to say that most of the Gospels are fictional. Yet we, we're discovering um, new archaeological finds almost every year that show just the opposite, that uh, the, the, the people that are mentioned in the New Testament were real people. We have actual excavations of their burial sites. We have inscriptions. Uh, Descriptions with their names on them, and these are not even the important people. Some of these are minor officials, as I said before, and so that kind of reinforces the, the proof that this was uh, this was a history. This wasn't a fictional chronicle that was just made up of thin air, which more and more people are saying these days, which is just demonstrably false. The whole Jesus myth thing that's on the internet. Now, what were some of the heated controversies and growing pains that arose in the early church? Well, as everyone knows, the biggest controversy that took about 20 years to resolve was whether you had to first convert to Judaism in order to join the Jew- the Jesus movement. There were many, many uh, people who had joined the community that were, some of them were Pharisees, which were, they were zealous Jews for the law, and they sincerely believed that before you could become a part of the Jesus movement, as we like to call the early early Christianity, you had to first convert to Judaism. And that didn't didn't resolve itself until the first Council of Jerusalem that was held in around 49 A.D. So it took about 20 years <clears throat> for that to be settled, and that was a huge controversy. And we saw very early on with the Apostle Peter and others reaching out to non-Jews uh, that this, too, was part of Jesus' original intention, because they would not have done that if they did not feel that that was something that Jesus himself wanted them to do. Uh, and, you know, Jesus himself had said that never, I have not seen such faith, even in Israel, when speaking of a Roman centurion, a Roman centurion who was a, a soldier of an occupying army. That in itself showed that he wanted his movement to spread beyond Israel uh, to the Gentile world, and that's exactly what his followers did uh, after his death and resurrection. What were some of the other historical sources that helped you reconstruct the early church? Um, Josephus was huge. I know m- many of your listeners know who Josephus mm-hmm. was. Uh, a lot of the earliest writings of the post-New Testament uh, Christian writers will tell you a lot. There's a couple of fascinating chronicles that people should read. Uh, early pilgrims who visited uh, uh, the Holy Land in around the 300s, and they've been uh, invaluable sources for archaeologists trying to find things. Uh, because they wrote extensively, well, not so extensively. One didn't write very extensively, but the other one did. 
uh, wrote very extensively about her travels. She was a rich, a wealthy Christian woman who spent three years in Jerusalem around 380 A.D. and described everything she found there. And so uh, that's helped archaeologists find a lot of the places um, that they now know existed from her writings. Well, who, to whom do you think this book would um, would best help uh, understand and appreciate the history of uh, of the Church of Christianity as it spread across uh, the the world, really, and turned the world upside down? Well, I, I really am trying to write for everybody. Um, I think I think uh, dedicated church going folk uh, might know a lot of the stuff. Although even they, I think, would be um, surprised by some of the archaeological discoveries that have been found recently. Uh, I think anybody who, you know, was raised in the church but just maybe hasn't been to church very often in the past, they would be very surprised that a lot of what they heard debunking Christianity simply isn't true, and that there are many secular sources and writers and historians who now agree that those attacks aren't true. And so I think they would really benefit from it. Uh, and actually, anybody who's interested in, in, in how Christianity came to be, I mean, the miracle of, of how, uh, how quickly it uh, became the dominant religion in the world, um, I think they would find this interesting. Well, I would certainly agree. Again, the title of the book is The Dawn of Christianity, Telling That History, How God Uses Simple Fishermen, Soldiers, and Prostitutes to Transform the World. I guess he can even use you and I. Robert Hutchinson, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Georgine. Appreciate it very much. Bye-bye. The book, by the way, is um, uh, published by HarperCollins. We've got news and traffic coming at the top of the hour. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show. Clark Hilton is engineering. James Blend is producing. Well, the breaking news story uh, earlier today was the Washington Post article alleging that uh, Donald Trump revealed highly classified information to Russian foreign minister and the uh, Russian ambassador when he met last week. That has been soundly uh, contradicted by um, H.R. McMaster, who is the national security advisor. Um, well, we're going to play the audio. He gave a very brief um, uh, press announcement earlier today. But White House officials uh, have denounced the Washington Post report that the president revealed classified information about ISIS to Russia's foreign minister uh, and Moscow's ambassador to the United States during that uh, meeting last week. In a brief statement in front of the White House, the National Security Advisor, H.R. McMaster, described the Post story as false. And this is what he had to say. I just have a brief statement for the record. There's nothing that the president takes more seriously than the, the security of the American people. The story that came out tonight, as reported, is false. The president and the foreign minister reviewed a range of common threats to our two countries, including threats to civil aviation. At no time, at no time, were intelligence sources or methods discussed. And the president did not disclose any military operations that were not already publicly known. Two other senior officials who were present, including the Secretary of State, remember the meeting the same way and have said so. Their on-the-record accounts should outweigh those of anonymous sources. And I I was in the room. It didn't happen. Thanks, everybody.
Well, again, the newspaper cited current and former U.S. officials who said the Trump, uh, the president jeopardized a critical source of intelligence on ISIS and his conversations with the Russian officials, uh, which, again, uh, was contradicted by the National Security Advisor. His statement echoed earlier denials that were issued by two other administration officials who attended the meeting as well, who were named. Uh, this story is false. The president only discussed the common threats that both countries face, said uh, Dina uh, Powell, Deputy National Security Advisor for Strategy. In addition, uh, Secretary of State Rex Tillerson said uh, Trump and Lavrov did not discuss sources, methods or military operations. Now, McMaster said the statement by Powell and Tillerson should outweigh the accounts of anonymous sources in the Post report. I was in the room. McMaster concluded it did not happen. Well, the officials told the Post that Trump offered details about an ISIS terror threat related to the use of laptop computers on aircraft. The newspaper says the information was very sensitive, uh, had been provided by a U.S. partner through an intelligence sharing arrangement. They said it was considered so sensitive that details have been withheld from allies and tightly restricted even within the U.S. government. Now, one of the things that's I mean, it's shocking if this is, in fact, what happened. The other thing that's shocking is that someone who was in the meeting and there was a limited number of them. uh, There were the three um, uh, cabinet members and then there was a very small handful of uh, of intelligence operatives as well, uh, that this was uh, that the conversation between the president and the ambassador was given directly to a, a newspaper is is equally of concern. Well, not maybe equally, but is of concern. The Post claimed the intelligence partner had not given the United States permission to share the material with Russian officials uh, that was allegedly shared during that meeting by the president. By doing so, they say the the uh, administration jeopardized cooperation from an ally familiar with the inner workings of ISIS. Well, afterward, the White House officials, they took steps to contain the damage, placing calls to the CIA, the National Security Agency, Agency, the newspaper reported, if the Post report is true, it's unlikely that Trump uh, has broken a law as president. The president can, uh, in fact, uh, he has broad authority to declassify government secrets. Senator Bob Corker, chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, told reporters uh, this evening that the White House has got to do something soon to bring itself under control and order. He said uh, he would uh, have more to say uh, once he knows more about the news report. Well, the shame of it is there's a really good national security team in place and there are good productive things that are underway through them and through others, Corker went on to say. But the chaos that is being created by the lack of discipline, it's creating an environment that I think makes uh, it creates a worrisome environment, end quote. Well, Democrats, of course, quickly jumped on the report with Democratic National Committee issuing a statement saying Russia no longer has to spy on us to get information. They just asked President Trump and he spills the beans with highly classified information that jeopardizes our national security and hurts our relationship with allies. Uh, They didn't have the same level of concern when the former Secretary of State was uh, giving access uh, through uh, her server uh, to operatives of hostile countries either. So a little bit disingenuous to make the point now, although it's a valid one. If Trump weren't president, his dangerous disclosure to Russia could end with him in handcuffs, the DNC statement continued. But of course, the president has uh, latitude that a civilian would not. Senator Mark Warner, the ranking member of the Senate Intelligence Committee, tweeted that if the Post's report was true, Trump's disclosure represented a slap in the face to the intel community. Well, you've heard a little bit from both sides what actually happened, what's accurate, what's not, what the um, cabinet members have said, as uh, opposed to um, unnamed sources, uh, will have to stand at the moment. But my guess is tomorrow will be a very full day of distractions uh, for the um, uh, Trump administration trying to resolve this latest controversy 
uh, and we'll uh, we'll follow the story as it develops. Well, an unprecedented global um, ransomware attack uh, hit at least 100,000 organizations in 150 countries. It spread to thousands more computers today as people returned to work and logged in for the first time since the massive online assault began. The attack that started on Friday is believed to be the biggest online extortion attack ever recorded. It spread chaos by locking computers that uh, run Britain's hospital network, Germany's national railway and scores of other companies, factories and government agencies worldwide. A BBC analysis determined that $38,000 had already been paid to those behind the attacks. However, that figure could climb exponentially as users logged in today and those already um, uh, infected give uh, uh, give in to the rising demands. Well, Stephen Wilson, who's the head of uh, Europol's European Cybercrime Center, told Sky News that it was now important that IT departments check their systems uh, to ensure that they have not been compromised. He added it's not massively sophisticated in uh, in the terms of the attack. Uh, what is new is the use of a worm to propagate through systems. It's beyond anything that we've seen before. Wilson spoke as hospitals in the U.K. were beginning to get back to normal, although some were still experiencing problems after the global attack, uh, which hit 48 National Health Service trusts in England, 13 Scottish health boards, according to Sky News. President Trump ordered his Homeland Security Advisor, Tom Bussert, uh, to hold an emergency meeting on uh, Friday night to assess the uh, the threat posed by the cyber attack. Senior security staff uh, held uh, another meeting in the White House uh, Situation Room on Saturday, and the FBI and National Security Agency were trying to identify the perpetrators of the massive attack and uh, said one official who spoke on condition of anonymity. Security experts warn that further cyber attacks are likely. One of the things I keep hearing um, referenced over and over again is the fact that if you are keeping up with the updates that your provider is uh, is offering, you're less likely to be to fall victim to this kind of cyber attack. I know that my phone, for example, over the weekend, um, it, it imposed updates that I wasn't really interested in getting. And it's frustrating because now I have to learn a whole new way of doing virtually everything. Um, but looking at a story like this, those updates are for a reason. They anticipate uh, problems that uh, that either they've experienced or um, are likely to be next. And so it's important to keep those uh, systems updated. And I guess I had to take back my lament uh, over the weekend of... Uh, having my phone updated without really having any options to do otherwise. Hey, I want to remind you before we go to break here in just a couple of minutes that uh, this Saturday at 6 p.m. at New Hope Auditorium, the Portland Singing Christmas Tree Choir is presenting the Hymn Sing. This is the first one of 2017, and we would love for you to come and be a part of that. The event is free of charge, but we do ask that you get a ticket, and that gives a uh, uh, gives an opportunity to make sure that everyone who plans to come uh, has uh, seating. So if you would um, be so kind as to make arrangements to go to the website or to phone them, uh, you can get your ticket. There'll be a free will offering taken at the event. That telephone number to uh, secure your ticket, 503-557-8733. That's 503-557-8733. You also have an opportunity to enjoy a dinner before the concert. The cost of uh, that chicken dinner is $10. That will begin at 4.30, and uh, you'll need to reserve uh, uh, and purchase your uh, t- 
ticket for your dinner, uh, and you can reserve your free ticket for the hymn sing as well. That telephone number, 503-557-8733. That's coming up this Saturday at New Hope Church in their auditorium on uh, Southeast Stevens Road in Happy Valley. And that's featuring the Portland Singing Christmas Tree Choir, Timothy Greenwich, Coral Walterman, Aaron Tamblin. And you, the choir, invites you to sing along. It is, after all, a hymn sing, and it's a beautiful, beautiful time uh, to lift our voices in praise. And uh, what a sound we all produce. I think last time there were about 2,000 people in the audience, 150-plus choir. And I'm telling you, it was just, it it was amazing. I I confess to having teared up several times during the course of it, singing these familiar old hymns of the faith that uh, keep us um, tethered to the generations that have passed and the generations yet to come. These are are beautifully written uh, songs that we will share together this Saturday at the Hymn Sing. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, 15 minutes after 5 o'clock. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 20 minutes after 5 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, North Carolina's tough voter identification law was dealt with uh, something of a fatal blow today as the Supreme Court rejected an appeal to reinstate the policy. Advocates of that law said it was meant to preserve the integrity of elections and counter voter fraud, but critics said it unfairly singled out black voters. Well, the justices on Monday left in place a lower court ruling citing that alleged discrimination. That ruling struck the law's photo ID requirement and reduction in early voting. Well, the decision comes just days after the president ordered a new review of voter fraud allegations. In North Carolina, in that case, the situation was complicated when Democratic Governor Roy Cooper and Attorney General Josh Stein rather tried to withdraw the appeal, which was first filed when Republican uh, Pat McCrory was governor. Chief Justice John Roberts said the political situation created uncertainty over who's authorized to seek review of the lower court ruling. The dispute is similar to the court fight over Texas voter ID law, also struck down as racially discriminatory. Republicans in both states moved to enact new voting measures after the Supreme Court in 2013 struck down a provision of the Federal Voting Rights Act that had required them to get advanced approval before changing laws dealing with elections. Voters, civil rights groups, and the Obama administration filed lawsuits challenging the new laws. The Trump administration already has dropped its objection to the Texas law. Well, shortly before he took office in January, uh, President Trump, uh, the Justice Department, urged the Supreme Court to reject the North Carolina uh, uh, appeal. Uh, When the law passed, North Carolina Republicans said voter ID is a sound requirement to increase the integrity of elections. But the fourth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals said the state provided no evidence that the kind of in-person voter fraud the ID mandate would address. The uh, Richmond, Virginia-based court said that the law was enacted with intentional bias against black voters. The law was amended in 2015 to include a method for people unable to get a voter ID to still vote. Following the appeal, uh, the appellate ruling, rather, the state asked the high court to allow the challenged Provisions to remain in effect in November's election, election rather, the justices rejected that request by a 4-4 tie on almost uh, uh, on most of the challenged provisions with the four more conservative justices supporting the state bid. Roberts cautioned uh, today that the rejection of the appeal is not a comment on the court's view about the substance of the law. It had more to do with uh, with standing and given the confusion in the state and from one administration to another. My guess is it will come uh, before them under different circumstances at some point in the future. 
Meanwhile, Hillary Clinton, she officially jumped back into politics today by launching her new PAC, Onward Together. The 2016 Democratic presidential nominee and former Secretary of State announced the news on Twitter and in a blast email to supporters pushing people to sign up. In her tweet, she wrote, the last few months I've been reflecting, spending time with family and, yes, taking walks in the woods. We're launching Onward Together to encourage people to get involved, organize and even run for office. Well, Onward Together is dedicated to advancing the vision that earned nearly 66 million votes in the last election, the PAC's mission statement says. By encouraging people to organize, get involved and run for office, Onward Together will advance progressive values, work to build a brighter future for generations to come, end quote. The Republican National Committee fired back at Clinton with a statement of its own, of course. The American people rejected Hillary Clinton six months ago because she's completely out of touch, untrustworthy, and embraced the failed policies of the PAC. The RNC spokesman Michael uh, Ahrens wrote, if Democrats were smart, they'd realize it's time to move onward from Hillary Clinton altogether. In her email, Clinton uh, framed the group as a vehicle to resist uh, unspecific opponents. She didn't name the Trump administration, but referenced protests against his policies. And certainly they are included. Um, In recent months, we've seen what's possible when people come together to resist bullying, hate, falsehoods and divisiveness and stand up for a fairer, more inclusive America, Clinton emailed. From the Women's March to uh, airports where communities are welcoming immigrants and refugees to town hall meetings in every community, Americans are speaking up and speaking out like never before, end quote. Well, Clinton specifically said the PAC would back groups like Swing Left, Color of Change, and Emerge America, uh, and tweeted, stay tuned for more to come. This year hasn't been what I envisioned, but I know what I'm still fighting for, a kinder, big-hearted, inclusive America onward uh, she tweeted, Clinton has uh, spoken on uh, out repeatedly about her defeat by Donald Trump in last year's election at a women's conference earlier this month. She blamed former FBI director James Comey and Russian interference for the loss, while also saying she took absolute personal responsibility for uh, her defeat. It's the new math, so you can figure that out. If the election were on October 27th, which, of course, it never is, she said, I would be president. So she's got a new organization. You can look for more information on that as you are interested. Well, I wanted to spend the remainder of the program looking at stories that are behind the stories, things that are happening in God's economy that you may not otherwise be aware. Uh, One article out of uh, CNS News points out that Christianity in Europe isn't quite uh, the demise, as they put it, of Christianity isn't quite um, what you might have expected. Uh, has it been greatly exaggerated, they ask. Well, there are some encouraging signs of life, and I think you might find this encouraging as well. It's become customary to refer to Europe as post-Christian. Uh, this is a CNS editorial, but this is an overstatement, and it obscures large differences in religious practices across the continent. For instance, Poles are far more likely to attend church on a weekly basis than Scandinavians, and even more likely than Americans. Still, it's difficult to dispute the idea that Christianity's influence in Europe on both the personal and societal level is in decline. But a pair of recent stories suggest that this may be changing. The headline read, Our politicians are more devout than ever, so it's time we started taking their faith seriously. In it, uh, Nick Spencer, whose just-released book is entitled The Mighty and the Almighty, How Political Leaders Do God, notes that rather than European politics becoming a God-free zone, one of the most striking trends of the last generation or so is how many Christian politicians have risen to the top of the political tree. 
Whereas in the 35 years following the end of World War II, only one prime minister, Harold uh, McMillan, could be described as devout. Since then, at least three of his successors, Margaret Thatcher, Tony Blair, and now Theresa May, could be described that way. And it's not only Britain. As Christianity Today recently told readers, German Chancellor Angela Merkel's Christianity is deep, genuine, and important to her life. Even in France, the country that invented and institutionalized modern secularism, Catholicism has become a kind of X factor in the upcoming presidential elections. And that brings the writer of the editorial to the second story. In the most recent issue of the Jesuit magazine, America, Pascal Emmanuel Gobry told readers that a few years back, he noticed that whenever he was less than five minutes early for mass, he'd go to the overflow room. His church was filled to the gills every Sunday with young families and children most of the time. He decided to see how widespread the phenomenon was. So he visited parishes all over Paris and found the same thing. Sunday high mass is packed in most parishes in Paris. Now, the same is true in France's second largest city, Lyon. Um, It's even true, albeit to a somewhat lesser extent, in his family home village, his family's home village. What was once a revival that you would uh, you could feel uh, fleeting uh, in the air has become more tangible, he writes, nowhere more than in the movement called Protest for All. Uh, it's got 200,000 people in Paris alone to march in protest against legalizing same-sex marriage, which has apparently drawn many believers uh, together and back to church. This, in turn, spawned other Christian movements in a country that supposedly had moved beyond this sort of thing. Uh, What these movements share is an opposition to liberalism, which in the French context means a drive for uh, ever greater individual liberty. As Gabri writes, liberalism in this view is responsible for sexual depravity and the culture of death and leads both to abortions and the quasi-slavers in third world factories making disposable consumer items of questionable worth, end quote. And while French Christianity still has a ways to go, what Gobri describes uh, brings to mind a cloud as small as a man's hand rising from the sea, which is, of course, is a reference uh, from Elijah's uh, Elijah, whose servants saw in First King 18. Secularism has left Europeans in a dry and weary land where there is no water, he goes on to write. Let us pray that God sends much-needed rain to both sides of the Atlantic. Um, and it's uh, an interesting and encouraging development to consider that perhaps even in Europe, uh, believers are returning to the fold, whether that's in church or uh, in other ways. We're going to take a break here in a moment. When we come back, I want to share with you what Um, we're learning about ISIS and its impact on Muslims who are coming to faith in Christ. Uh, That and more, that's in um, Iraq and also in Iran. Iranians are having visions of Christ uh, in the midst of ongoing persecution, and it's inspiring to hear their stories of uh, unwavering faith. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 36 minutes after 5 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, Voice of the Martyrs is declaring that ISIS is pushing many Muslims toward Christ, and particularly in, uh, in Iran, or excuse me, in Iraq. The self-proclaimed Islamic State, they write, not only pros- persecutes Christian, but also pushes Muslims toward Christ. Its efforts to create a pure Islamic nation are causing a growing number of Muslims uh, to examine their faith more closely and more critically. Uh, They quote a pastor um, saying that, and he's a pastor in northern Iraq, he says there are a lot of people turning from Islam, 
Uh, Jesus has a big net and ISIS is pushing people toward this net. What we are seeing now is like the tip of the iceberg. We're talking about um, Pastor Ibrahim al-Jamil. He said he also sees evidence on social media and elsewhere on the Internet that Muslims are leaving Islam. He said they are repulsed by what ISIS is doing and increasingly uh, disagree with Islam's teachings. ISIS is making people, especially Muslims, think about their faith and question the faith they were born into and don't understand. They were reading the Quran, but there is a veil. So now when they're reading the Quran, they have a better understanding and they are questioning if this is the true faith and if Allah is ordering people to kill each other. So there's uncertainty, he uh, says, at least in among Muslims in Iraq. When they first leave Islam, Ibrahim said, many people initially uh, claim no religion. Uh, then they... Uh, uh, they have been taught that Christianity is a false religion and Judaism isn't an option because Jews have long been viewed as the enemy. That's why if they uh, didn't see a dream or a vision, they don't come to Christianity at all, he adds. When they see a dream or a vision, the first thing after Islam is Christianity because the vision and dream is about Jesus saving them or telling them something. Uh, he estimates that about 80% of the Christian converts that he has met came to Christ after having a dream about Jesus. Muslims strongly believe in dreams and visions, he said. And when we pray for the Muslims, the Lord is going to use uh, the way that they are believing strongly, which is dreams and visions, because a lot of people in a lot of churches are praying for Muslims. Specifically, that is why they see dreams and visions. A friend told me, and I'm quoting, when I wake up, I don't pray for Muslims. I pray, Lord, everyone whose name is Muhammad, please come to him. So he is going to be praying for 20% of Muslims. Now we pray for every covered lady that's covered with a V. Please, Lord, show yourself to her. So we are praying for 40% of Muslims, he says. Well, Pastor Ibrahim regularly hears former Muslims share their conversion story when they first visit his church. One guy came to me and said, I, um, I want to become a Christian. I said, why? He said, because I saw in the river and no one could help me. But I saw a face full of light come to me, and I was reaching my hand to him, and he took me out from the river. I asked him, who was this man? He said, Jesus. I said, referring to the pastor, how did you know? And the man said, I just know him. Well, another man who responded to a dream is now leading Muslims to Christ and helping believers grow in their faith. I've had the opportunity personally to meet several people who came to faith in Christ by this very means, and it's it's uh, fascinating to hear how God is drawing people to himself in the absence of a, a Christian witness. This guy saw all the prophets coming in his dream, Ibrahim says, the pastor, all the prophets, one after the other, starting from Moses. At the end, he saw Jesus coming, the last one, and he said, I waited for Muhammad to come because for him, for them, uh, he is the last one, and nobody showed up. They said Jesus is the last one, so he became a Christian, and now he is a pastor. Well, during a recent four-month period, Ibrahim's church baptized 15 new believers, eight of whom were former Muslims. When former Muslims get baptized, he said they are forever committed to Christ, even in the face of intense persecution. He said that getting baptized means they become a Christian and they left their life and now they are ready to die for Jesus, even if it costs them their family. And while ISIS continues to push Muslims toward Christ, it also continues to drive them out of their homes. Nearly 3.3 million refugees have fled ISIS in Iraq alone. And though Christians are part of this exodus, Ibrahim's church is continually replenished with new believers. 
it's a uh, constantly different uh, congregation. It's it's difficult to keep people, he said, but new people are coming, so the church is full every Sunday because a lot of people are coming to know Jesus. Seventy percent of our church has changed in one year, he, he writes. And while Ibrahim does not advise people whether to stay or to leave, he does share his thoughts on what could happen if Christianity ceased to exist in Iraq. I usually say if you take the salt and the light out of Iraq, we are going to be more dark and without any taste. So the most challenging thing is to encourage people to stay in this area and to minister. Uh, Voice of the Martyrs is helping to equip and uh, build the church there as well. And then in Iran, according to uh, Word magazine, um, or rather the uh, Billy Graham Association, they point out following the weekend of the World Summit in defense of persecuted Christians that in Iran, underground Christian churches are spreading like wildfire. Um, set ablaze as the name of Jesus Christ flickers in the shadows. Now, that's the quote from a young believer uh, who whose father was martyred in Iraq for uh, refusing to renounce his faith. Well, the power of the risen Savior, she writes, is rocking this country to its core, prompting an unprecedented number of Iranians to abandon ritualistic faith in favor of one based in relationship. Converts uh, covertly cluster in homes over shared Bibles, worshiping so softly they can't always hear themselves, let alone each other. They meet quietly and carefully because in Iran, anything other than Islam can be considered anti-government. If the wrong neighbor finds out, the consequences could be dire. Their life is in danger, but they're coming to Christ because they feel that this is actually a true relationship, says Rashin Sudmand. She's a native of Iran. They can see the presence of God, she writes. Well, the voices of the faithful might be muted, but their hearts are bursting. And this surge of Christian faith encourages her. She understands firsthand the peril of having such devotion. Her father was hanged for refusing to deny Christ. Hussein, uh, let's see, Sudman Rashin's father was raised Muslim in the holy city of Mashhad. Uh, During his two-year military service, he was hospitalized with sickness, and a friend of his, an Armenian Christian, came to visit. The friend left him with a cross. That night, the young Muslim dreamed that Jesus Christ gave him something to eat, and he woke up sweating, realizing that Jesus had healed him. He accepted Christ into his heart on that day. His life was changed, and from that point forward, he devoted it to serving the Lord, even though that meant being rejected by his family. Years later, Reverend Hussein uh, Sudmand, he started a church in his home. Uh, a, a dozen or so Christians, many of them converts, would gather in his home, his basement, for service. They sang worship songs without instruments. They listened to a message while poring over um, hard-to-find copies of God's Word. Now just just picture that in the darkened basement Um, singing without instruments, pouring over what fragments of God's word they had. It was a great uh, time, says his daughter. I was very small, so I always loved to go for worship. Uh, She says that she was a preteen at the time. She admitted uh, with a laugh that she didn't like to stay for the preaching, but she always loved the worship. Still, the word of God had been impressed on her heart, and along with her father's unapologetic decision to follow Jesus, she remembers her family gathering every night at about 9 p.m. for Bible reading and prayer. At age seven, she had her own dream about Jesus, and that solidified her faith. She says, I saw Jesus and my father. They started walking toward me, uh, walking forward, and they looked back and said, follow me, follow us, she recalled. Um, that's had a great impact on my life. Well, uh, she is the daughter who spent, uh, whose father spent the better part of her life sharing the gospel, uh, who ultimately lost his life for that very reason. She made a decision to follow Jesus that day, and she 
uh, stuck with it, uh, even though her Muslim classmates considered her unclean. It was stressful, and there were challenges, such as explaining what it meant uh, when she said that her father was a pastor. But future trials promised to grow her even more deep in her faith. The Islamic Republic was uh, gathering steam in the early 1980s on the heels of the Iranian Revolution when her father was evangelizing in their town in Iran in the holy Muslim city of Mashhad. Um, converting to Christianity wasn't just frowned upon by the new regime. It was unofficially considered a criminal activity labeled anti-government. Officials uh, closed the basement church that he had been pastoring, arrested the, uh, the pastor, her father, several times. And while detained, he was tortured psychologically and physically. But he never relented his call, meeting privately to uh, teach and encourage his fellow Christians. And he never denied the name of Jesus Christ, even when officials promised death to him. I could not imagine living without my father, she thought back, uh, back then. In late 1990, they had... Uh, uh, made good on their promise. Reverend Sudmond, was, uh, who had refused to stop talking about Jesus, had declined a well-intentioned offer from friends to flee. Officials arrested him one last time. He was hanged to death on December 3, 1990. And although the family didn't find out until two weeks later, by then strangers had buried him in a dusty field the government re- uh, reserved for the cursed, and his family was re- forbidden from marking his grave in any way. Well, Rashin, the uh, the the daughter who was just 13 at the time she was heartbroken and even before the death she couldn't fathom losing her father he'd made a point uh, to be close to each of his children and he was close to her she said i could not imagine living without my father even when my father was with us i was thinking uh, if i don't have him with me i can't live anymore the day my father was persecuted i don't know i felt someone embrace me and my family i had an incredible peace she says to this day she and her family have felt that we they were embraced and protected, and that that was Jesus. Well, the persecution continued, and she uh, was one of the individuals who came to the United States to be part of the summit that took place this weekend. Uh, And she asked that we would pray for Iran, that we would ask that God would open the eyes of the leaders there, embolden the hearts of the believers, take action and communicate with elected officials that persecution is a real issue that needs to be addressed Um, And that this meeting where hundreds met to discuss and advocate change regarding persecuted Christians would bear fruit and fruit that would remain. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 52 minutes after five o'clock. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Wanted to uh, let you know that we have extended our listener savings on school tuitions at local Christian schools. And you can find out more at kpdq.com. If you've ever thought about giving your child a rich Christ-centered education, this may be the time to begin or at least to strengthen that commitment to continue. KPDQ listeners can save up to 40% on top Christian schools in the Portland area. And you can go to listeners savings. That's singular listener savings.com right now and save that's listener savings.com. We have extended that um, tuition discount for you. So if you were a little bit late, you have an opportunity. And for pastors, KPDQ invites all area pastors to our local KPDQ Pastors Masters Golf Tournament. This year's tournament will be uh, taking place at the beautiful Langdon Farms Golf Club that's in Aurora, just south of Wilsonville. And that is coming up on Monday, July the 24th. We're talking about full 18 holes of golf followed by a delicious, scrumptious lunch. And the cost to attend is just $20. Space is limited, so please register today at kpdq.com. We would love to see you and to just uh, give you a great afternoon with fellow pastors. It's one of the 
one of the highlights of my uh, my calendar year here at KPDQ. Well, taking a look at uh, the remainder of this week on Tuesday, we're going to talk with Jed um, Metafind. He's the author of Becoming Home. It's part of a, the Frames series, Adoption, Foster Care and Mentoring. Uh, living out God's heart for orphans. If you ever thought about being a foster parent or adopting, but you were concerned about whether or not that would be possible for you, uh, we're going to talk about uh, that and an option that is uh, being chosen by increasing numbers of families. Uh, Jeff uh, Metafind will be my guest on Tuesday, and we will cover that. And then on Thursday, uh, Harold and Kimmy Otterly, um, they are Oasis hosts. And if you're wondering what Oasis is, it's an opportunity uh, for pastors uh, and their families uh, to find respite. And it's a tremendous ministry. You don't find many of them around, but there are a few. And uh, Harold and Kimmy are uh, the hosts of Life Impact Ministries that provides that opportunity for pastors who are just burned out, or maybe they're recovering from an illness or stress on the family or uh, any number of things. But we're going to talk about this ministry that extends that opportunity uh, to those who minister the gospel to others, but sometimes themselves uh, need help. And so I'm looking forward to introducing the ministry to some of you and for others, uh, perhaps um, reminding you that this is an option for those involved in ministry in our community. We were talking earlier today about another controversy in Washington, and we've talked about a lot of uh, things that are going on all across the uh, all across the world uh, the Russian fighter jets that are challenging U.S. Uh, Navy aircraft. We've talked about the missile launch in North Korea and how that poses a number of challenges, that there are uh, nations that are now calling for a special meeting uh, to discuss uh, what to do about North Korea. At the same time, you have a, U- a branch of the U.N. that's granting a patent that would allow them to develop a banned substance that the U.N. Uh, General Assembly has specifically said they cannot Uh, have or develop. So there's confusion in the camp. Uh, We've talked about what's uh, happening in Syria and that the numbers of of dead and efforts to to, uh, cover uh, what the leadership is doing there seems to be revealed in a crematorium that's been discovered to cover up the what they believe to be mass murders that are taking place there. And that in Mexico, uh, it is considered the second deadliest conflict zone. It's it's uh, focused on two areas, but the, the gang violence there is creating some serious problems. Um, we're living in a very difficult and challenged world. And if we are not men and women of faith who are spending time in prayer, uh, who are not taking seriously the, the great commission that we are to share our faith, I shared at the uh, end of the uh, the hour some stories from other places around the world where being a Christian brings with it uh, some very serious challenges. Uh, that Christianity is uh, perhaps re-emerging uh, in Europe as the challenges there have perhaps uh, caused people to consider that the leaders that they had put their trust in may not be able to handle all of the issues that are of great and growing concern there. That ISIS is having an influence on those who are seeking a relationship and find it in a relationship with Christ and how he's revealing himself to people in the absence of what we would consider a common Christi- Christian witness, how in Iran that they're are many who are coming to faith in Christ uh, and are are bold in their faith and are not um, wavering despite the fact that there is tremendous opposition. Um, Ongoing persecution is a reality for them, for many Christ followers in this part of the world. Uh, Open Doors, which is a global watchdog, helps keep some of us informed. And in Iran, for example, eight out of the 50 countries most hostile toward uh, Christians, there is a 
a growing church. There is a growing vitality in the Christian faith. The oppression, they tell us, is extreme. Arrest and violence are commonplace for anyone engaged in Christian ministry or evangelism, and yet the church is growing and people are serious about their faith. Bibles are not allowed to be printed there. In fact, um, the young woman whose story I was sharing earlier warns people to stay away from the book that, um, uh, or rather the government has produced, she tells us, uh, a public service announcement that warns people to stay away from this book because it will change your life, at least admitting that the uh, the word of God has the capacity to change one's lives. Now, what they mean by that is quite different from what you and I might, but it's encouraging to see uh, what's happening there. Um, she writes, uh, Rashin, again, uh, quoting her, they thought that maybe they uh, they can change people's minds from being Christian, but I think that was one of the ways that God used to evangelize. Many people there are actually seeking for that Bible, recognizing it has the power to change life. And in the public service announcement that the government intended to discourage people is, she suggests, actually encouraging them to seek after the Bible, the word of God. Well, even under decades of rising persecution, she goes on, the hunger for God's word has only strengthened. She remembers in the years after her father's murder and he was hanged for his faith that she would handwrite scripture and leave them in a taxi or in a restaurant. Once she wrote the entire gospel of John and at the prompting of the Holy Spirit, she left it on a stranger's doorstep. She is zealous as are many others in sharing their faith, even in difficult circumstances. And I hope we'll do the same. We'll share our faith with others, our testimony, and we'll be men and women of prayer. I want to thank Clark Hilton for engineering today's program, James Blend for producing, and thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at GRice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.